everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions live here on our weekly show. My name's Tina with my friend Jay. Hi, Jay. How you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Glad to have you join us today. I'm sorry that uh, your wife, Wendy, isn't able to join us tonight. I think she's still feeling ill, but uh, praise God, uh, we're still able to answer Bible questions. Amen? Amen. That's right, Jill. We'll pray, keep her in prayer, but definitely we're glad that we could join the rest of you who are here. And it looks like some people have already joined the stream with, uh, with us. That's great. Yes. Hi, Robert. Hello. Nice to see you again. And welcome to anybody out there who's new. Uh, we just want to welcome you and remind you that this is a live show. So if you have comments or questions that you'd like, you know, inter interact with us, we always enjoy seeing those down in the comment section below. It's always a blessing to get to know our audience a little bit better and to hear from you. And um, if you say, um, if you notice that we have lots of questions that we feature, if you'd like one of your own questions featured on our weekly show, please, please be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org forward slash live. And that's where we get all of our great questions from our audience like you out there. We're so blessed to be able to hang out with you this evening and open up God's word together. So um, before we start, we always like to begin with a word of prayer. So Jay, would you mind praying for us? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time now to rest and to dive into your eternal word. And we pray that your spirit that inspired these words now help us to properly interpret them and understand them and bring us into oneness in your truth. And we thank you for each person who is here with us live, and may we all be blessed. And please be with Wendy as she's resting right now. And this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that. And yes, bless Wendy. <laughs> all righty. So I, I'm seeing we have a question already in the chat, but we also have a bunch of questions. So I'm wondering which, I don't know, Jay, what do you think? Where, where do you want to head out first? Where do you want to start? I think the question Robert asked is a quick one to answer. Okay, I'll let, I'll, I'll let you grab it. Great. So Robert is asking, he says, my first question is, what's the difference between repentance and re reconciliation? And I don't want to suggest that there's just a quick answer and it's not an important question. It actually is a very good, deep, profound question. Good to understand these concepts. But in a nutshell, repentance, biblical repentance is this concept of turning around. You've been going the wrong way. You've been doing the wrong things and you're actually going to turn around and stop doing what you've been doing. So there's actual change, a transformation where the person has decided and committed to not continue doing the wrong they were doing. Uh, so that is repentance. Reconciliation is the process of restoring a relationship. You, I mean, it's almost think of uh a rope that's been cut in half and you're tying the cord back together again. That's to me is, is what reconciliation is, you know, that the, the relationship has been restored and re there is a relationship between the two in that if someone is continuing to do a bad thing, continuing, continuing to harm the other person, continuing to do damage to the re relationship in a sense, keep cutting that rope, then that rope will the rope of the relationship will 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 not be able to be reconciled healthily in, in a healthful way. So reconciliation, sorry, repentance is pretty much usually a requirement for there to be successful reconciliation. So Tina, do you have any thoughts on that? 
I think that was very well put, um, you know, as far as, you know, just kind of the process of it, because there is definitely a difference between the two. Um, you know, when I think about, uh, like you're saying, um, excuse me, as far as, you know, repentance is, is you're right. It's a turning, it's a moving in the opposite direction. Whereas, and then reconciliation is, you know, people coming back together and there has to absolutely be, you know, a turning around from something wrong to have reconciliation between two parties. Um, if it's going to get better, uh, otherwise, you know, just like I have a child and, you know, my little one will often say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I've been trying to tell her, you know, when you're really sorry, you stop doing the bad thing. And that's what real repentance is, is, you know, it's a, it's a sorrow for sin, but it's, you know, a turning, a change. And so, you know, somebody can keep saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But then they, you know, they keep doing the same thing to hurt you. Then it's like, are they really sorry? And some, you know, sometimes it takes time to, you know, to change and, and that's understandable you know, if somebody's, you know, making efforts to change, but, um, in order to, for there to be, you know, full reconciliation, you know, that, that repentance, that change, that turning from the wrong thing has to, uh, be seen, has to be clear. Otherwise, you know, there can't be trust and without trust, it, that's really hard to have reconciliation, I think, between two people. Um, when it comes to God, I think God is a lot <laughs> more, more understanding, more loving, more forgiving, you know, than us as humans. And so, um, which is why, you know, forgiveness is really a supernatural thing. It's, it's really some, a gift from God to fully forgive because only God can really give that to you in your heart. But yeah, I, I, I definitely think that there's a difference between the two, just kind of like you're sharing Jay as well. Amen. If you need a verse that sort of illustrates this, this is Ezekiel 33, 11. It says, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So notice that turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways for why should you die, O house of Israel? So here, this is a call for repentance. God's calling them to turn from their ways. So hope that helps illustrate it. Thank you, Robert, for the excellent question. All right. I think it's time for the next question. Sure. So let's get that one up as soon as it comes. And it says, so Tom is asking, what does the Quran say about killing of Jews? Um, so I have to let you know, Tom, I am not an expert in the book of the Quran. Um, the Quran is a, a, a the religious book of the Islamic faith, and this is Bible asked. So we, you know, I'm, like I, I'm more familiar with the Bible. I'm not very familiar with the Quran. So I don't want to, um, you know, say something wrong, you know, or misrepresent, you know, the, the Islamic faith. Um, but I will say uh, there are you know, things that are written in the Quran. I don't know that it's specific to Jews. I don't, as far as I understand, there's not a verse in the Quran or, or a passage in the Quran that specifically um, talks about killing of Jews specifically, but there are um, texts in the Quran that do talk about killing those who are not believers. Um, and so, and that's, you can see that in the Quran um, in two colon 191 to 193 it says and kill them wherever you find them and you know as far as um 
so there there are verses in the Quran talking about you know killing um, those who are not who reject the faith who reject the Islamic faith. There are you know passages like in the Quran three fifty six those who reject the faith faith that they'll be punished uh, you know to punish them with terrible agony in this world um, and, and in the hereafter. Nor will they have anyone to help. There's definitely passages in the Quran talking about you know. Uh, a killing of those who reject the faith. And so, however, I know that some Muslims would argue, you know, is it really saying that, you know, or so there's, there's definitely, you know, some room for interpretation of, of some of these passages, but there are um, definitely some passages in the Quran that talk about um, the killing of those who are, who reject their faith. But um, most, at least I have a lot of friends who are Muslim and I, I know that they would never, you know, promote killing people who are not of their faith either. So you have to kind of, you know, understand um, that one, there's not anything specific to um, the killing of Jews as far as I know of, um, but also that, you know, there are passages about killing those who are uh, what some people call infidels or, you know, those who reject their faith. Um, but not everybody interprets those as you know, literal or that that's what you're you must do or that sort of a thing. And and not all Muslims practice. Most Muslims that I at least the ones I know don't practice. You know, the killing of other people who are not of their faith. Um, you know, most people that I know who are Muslim are very peaceful, kind people. So um, there are passages that could be interpreted, you know, for killing. But um, those are. The, they're up for interpretation, I guess, if that's, if that makes sense. I don't know. Jay, do you have any other thoughts on that one? And, and actually, I think that last point you made there is, is an important one because uh, very similar to the Bible, the Quran, when originally written, did not have like vowels and punctuation, understand? So you have these words, the, these parts of words. And then the question is, is does this word mean grape or does it mean virgin? You know, and so you could get totally different meanings. And then there might be these words there that you might think it means these words. And now you have to figure out what do those words even mean? And so this is where you can have different traditions, even within Islam, interpreting this particular verse or even having a different version of that verse. And there's there's been efforts to then try to decide what is the real Quran and what is the standardized Quran. And, uh, and so like big efforts were made, for example, in Egypt in the early 1900s, where they burned a lot of different Qurans and they said, okay, let's go with this version here. So yeah, that's why it is hard. And, and I don't want to, none of us, any of, it, of us to be subject matter experts on this is what the Quran says, because it's hard to say, it's just like, almost like the Bible. Would you go, you know, which is the Bible, the King James version, the NIV or, uh, something else. Right. So which is not the best example because Quran is all in Arabic, but uh, it's, it's not such an easy to answer question. Yeah, definitely. And again, we're not, we're not experts in the Quran. So we, yeah. we can't, uh, you know, you know, fully endorse, you know, any set, you know, doctrine um, that they might believe. So yeah, that's what I would say. All right. Next question. And um, by the way, Robert, I think the next answer, long answer we'll give, will have implications to maybe help give you insights for your question. All right. So let's get the next question, which is a really good one. 
I think it's from our friend David. That's right. All right. So I'll go ahead and read it. It says, um, so David is asking, why is it so difficult to love others? Thank you. Jay, do you want to get a first crack at this? Yeah, this is one of those short questions that begs a very long answer. And I'll try to do it as concise as I can, but yet I want to be thorough because I think this is one of the most important questions all of us could and should be asking. Uh, it's it's almost like what our friend Robert just asked about, hey, you know, I'm, I'm having a sin that I can't overcome. This gets also to very much the essence of that question. So why is it so difficult to love others? First, let's set a standard definition here of what we're talking about when we say love. And the best example of this is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, which everybody's heard, right? And some of the best verses in, in the whole Bible, like love is love suffers long, is kind, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in inequity, but rejoice in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, adores all things. If you distill it all down, what Paul is telling us is that very much love is other-centeredness. It's a focus on others and you exist and live to serve and help and be there for others as opposed to being there for yourself. And Jesus also clarified that the epitome, the highest form of love is love that is self-sacrificing. He said in John 15, 13, no greater love has no one than this, sorry, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So that is the epitome of love even to the point of sacrificing your life for other people. So what is the opposite then, or rather the absence of love? That's going to be a lack of other-centeredness, a lack of concern for the welfare or interests of others, perhaps even, even to the point of benefiting oneself to the detriment of others. And, you know, you hear all the time these sayings, well, everybody's got to watch their own back. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. We're all fish in a big ocean and only the sharks are going to survive. These notions are, are what sort of foster and reflect this concept of you got to be there for yourself. Don't, don't worry about love. Be there for yourself. Love yourself first and foremost. And this lack of love, this prioritizing oneself could be summed up with one word, and that is selfishness. And indulged unrestrained selfishness embodies the essence of sin. The lack of self-restraint to the point of indulging our carnal desires then becomes what we call lust. You see in Romans 13, 14, it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So there's this concept that our body, the, the, that's the reference to the flesh. Our body has these carnal natures, these desires, these lusts, and us caving into them and just going with them is going to be contrary to Jesus, contrary to God's way, which is mastering and subduing these things. Um, and then we see here Galatians 5, 17, it says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. 
right? So going back to like our friend who said that, you know, I'm struggling, I have this sin I can't overcome. Yeah, we got within us the the spirit and what God wants us to do. And we have within us what our body is telling us we, we got to do and we want to do. And the carnal desires have their origin in things that God intended for good. And I think it's helpful when we understand, okay, what was this supposed to be for? And then how has it become a bad thing? So God has made us, for example, to be hungry so that we get prompted to eat. Hunger could be a good thing. We want to eat food. We want to nourish our bodies to get energy. It's a good thing. But if unrestrained, we find ourselves just eating cookies and potato chips and filling our body with tons of refined fast sugars and other processed ingredients that are going to damage our bodies rather than give it essential nutrients. Now we've crossed over into a realm that goes beyond what God intended of, of serving our hunger. Now we're letting this hunger drive us to, to not just nourish our bodies, but actually damage our bodies. Or even maybe even you might be eating decent things, but if you're eating too much food, you know, just packing on tons of pounds just because you're you're eating more than you should, that could also become a bad thing. So here's another example. God made from the beginning that a man and his wife should enter into a state of oneness emotionally and and physically. And to help drive this very thing, God gave them sexual desire. And it was intended that it would be awakened in marriage. And that except to the extent necessary um, to, to, to propel the man and the woman to seek out each other and to seek the experience of oneness, it, it wasn't supposed to do anything else. It was supposed to just, again, like bring the man and the wife, the husband and wife together give them oneness, help them to enjoy each other, to desire each other, to um, seek that oneness again, just between the two of them. And what we see, though, is that Satan takes that good desire and he manipulates it within us. So he tells us that we should listen to that desire, that we should indulge that lust, and that we are entitled to indulge it with anyone we want. And that that feeling, as it continues to get indulged, will get stronger and stronger. The more we listen to it, the more we feed it, those cravings, stronger it gets. And, and then this out-of-control sexual desire is what we often think of when we think of lust. But, but again, not all lust is sexual. It can it be just pretty much any desire, cravings of the body. So these things are example of like basic desires that God has placed in our body that were intended for good. And now Satan is manipulating it within us and distorting them to bring forth selfishness. So now there is another basic desire. So this is one that most people don't think about that Satan especially loves to manipulate us with. And this one is fear. So fear is a strong self-preservation response to an immediate threat, to an immediate danger. And it's supposed to kick in that fight or flight response so that you can either confront head on the danger or to successfully run from it. And that fear of heights, for example, that you feel when you like step up to a cliff and you're looking over like, whoa, I need to back up. Like, that's what fear is supposed to do. It's supposed to keep you from doing stupid things that might jeopardize your life. 
But most of the time, we experience fear in a different way. There isn't an immediate danger present, and we're not at risk of dying in that moment. But we, be, we begin imagining all sorts of things that can go wrong. We're, we're just thinking, oh, what if this? What if that? Oh, maybe this could happen in the next few weeks, months, whatever. And now we're suddenly being bogged down by what's technically called anxiety. And on the flip side, perhaps we're reliving a perceived past danger. Something happened to us in the past that might have been very painful, very hurtful, and we're burdened by that. And that's what we call trauma. So you got stuff from the past trauma, and we have what happened to us in the future or that we're afraid of in the future, anxiety. And it's by these things that Satan can manipulate us to be in a very selfish state. And, and we're not trying to be selfish. And this is why it's so effective to say it, because we're not trying to be selfish. We're just thinking that we're trying to survive. And this is why fear is so powerful, because we will do almost anything to preserve ourselves. Like, think about it. Would you be willing to steal to survive? Would you be willing to lie to survive? Would you be willing to betray your spouse or parents to survive? Would you be willing to betray God to survive? Would you be willing to break the Sabbath to survive? I mean, when, when you look at it, you think you're balancing, well, okay, well, my life versus, you know, any of these other things, maybe they're trivial compared to your life is, is the way the analysis might go in our heads. But look how Satan can manipulate us now to break just about any or all commandments of God by sim simply putting a gun to our head. And so the desire to love, again, we're, we're called to love. The desire to love is perhaps one of the greatest desires and motivators. Oh, sorry. The, so, the, so we have this desire of love, right? We, but if it's a desire for love for ourselves. It's going to be one of the greatest motivators uh, to cause us to do bad things. But if we're staying focused on others, it's going to have a different effect. And Satan wants to take what's good, these things God put into us for good, and then manipulate them, exploit them to the point that what is good actually becomes the means by which he enslaves us. Remember, God, God intentionally made it so that we would want to preserve our life but look how Satan turns that around and enslaves us. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lives, all their lifetime subject to bondage. So right here, we're being told by the author of Hebrews that we have been enslaved by fear of death. And this is how Satan keeps us under his control. We're afraid to die, so we'll do anything to preserve our life. So are you now seeing, I hope, how this verse even is, is more real and, and maybe have different eyes to this verse and how it fits into all these things. Why is it hard to love? Why is it hard to love? And this is where faith comes in, right? Because if we're living in a world where there's scarce resources, where you're afraid of how you're going to pay the bills, you're afraid of all the dangers that could come to you, what people might do to you, 
you're suddenly now isolating yourself and you're putting yourself in a self-protective state and you're you're not thinking of others and how you could bless them, what you could give to them, how you can uh, love them and, and, and all these things. It takes faith to love in this world, in this broken, dangerous world where we feel like there's scarce resources and it's a doggy dog world. And just think of these two situations. Think of Elon Musk. And he's walking down the street and he sees a poor man who asked for some change. Let's say he pulls out his giant wallet, picks out a $20 bill, hands it to the guy. Was that a great act of love by Elon? Especially, let's say he was surrounded by three or four bodyguards. He knows he's completely safe. Right? Not a big deal. But what if you are the average person with the average household, with the average income, and you're crushed by debt? You're crushed by credit cards that you've almost maxed out. You got a spouse and kids at home. You're tired from the day, a long day of work. And you see a dirty, sickly looking man on the side of the street you're working on. You're afraid of the germs that he might have. You're afraid that he might be dangerous and attack you. And then he sees you, you hold out your hand and he asks you, can you spare some change? What is your natural inclination there? And then why would you not indulge your fears in that moment? Your fears of safety, the safety of your kids, you know, your financial security. Why wouldn't you indulge them? It would take, I mean, the, you, the grain of your body is, oh, I got to get away from this guy. I got to stay safe. I got to think of my kids. I got to hold on to my money for them, right? All these thoughts are going through your mind. It's contrary to, it's counter to the normal way that we are called to live this way of love that God has before us. So love this guy in the street. You're thinking, ha, he's the threat. Help him out. He's probably richer than me because I have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, right? These are the thoughts that go through our minds. And the fact of the matter is it takes faith to love. And this is why we say that the just or the righteous man shall live by faith. He's just, he's righteous because he has faith. That faith empowers him to live that righteous, just life. You cannot be just or righteous without faith. Not in this world of danger, scarcity, and intense desires. There's no way we can do it. Likewise, true faith is going to manifest in works of love. This is how the true living faith works. It's going to show love to others. We see this, for example, in Galatians 5, 6. It says, for in Christ Jesus, there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. These things have no value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So again, I'll say again. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then we see in James 2, verses 14 to 17, it says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not work or does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what good is it? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, 
is dead. And then let's say one day we realize we're trapped. We are completely addicted. Uh, we're ensnared in intense, uncontrollable urges. How are we going to get free from this? You know, if we resist, we are likely going to find ourselves in an unwinnable battle. We usually cannot win this battle alone. I want to say it again. We cannot win this battle alone. And this is where so many of us go wrong. We try to tell God, okay, God, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to, I'm repenting and I'm going to overcome this sin. Watch me overcome this sin, God. I'm going to do it. Just watch me. But the fact of the matter is God looks at us with pity in his eyes because he knows there's no way we're going to get out of it on our own. And this is kind of what a lot of people mean where we need to just step back and we need to get it out of the way and we need to just let God do his thing. Because if we try to do it in our own strength, we are going to fail on this. We're not going to be able to overcome these desires, these urges, these sins on our own. We have to completely be broken on the rock of Christ and let him build us back up. We have to completely depend on the spirit to give us the power, the will, you know, even the will to do his pleasure. This is the only way to overcome this battle. And this is the battle, battle that we see Paul describing in Romans 7 to 8, where he's talking again about the, this, the law of the flesh and, and of death and the law of God and, and the spirit, the law of the spirit that's working in us to convert us, to, to empower us and to help us overcome these things. That's the only way we get out of this cycle. And this is why it's so hard to love again, because it's so against us. We want to do it ourselves. We want to do it in our own strength. We can't. And we have to learn to just depend on God. And, and this concept of depending on God is, again, essence of faith. Faith is depending on God's promises, believing his promises are true and relying on him to fulfill those. And, and so... Now we see ourselves, we're, we're in a world that's hurting, that is full of, of scarcity, we think. You know, we might not have money, and we see someone who needs it. Do you have the faith? Are you going to depend on God who says he has, you know, cattle on a thousand hills, who has immeasurable riches? Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Such that then you would actually put it into action and help others. And do you actually believe that God will protect you and that God loves you and he will not let you die and come to danger outside his determined time? And thus, you don't have to worry about taking risks at times to do what God wants you to do, to love others, to take care of them, things like that. I mean, it could go on and on, but this is why love is so hard and why we need to realize how faith is essential. And at the end of the day, the way we love others is going to reflect the actual amount of faith we have. And this is why we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus has that parable, right? And he talks about uh, those who, you know, took care of the poor, the needy, the least of these. He said, those who took care of them, those are my people. Whereas those who did not take care of the, the poor, the needy, the, the, the least of these, who just took care of their own interest and, and were selfish to care of themselves or out of their fears, again, were just for... For them, those are the ones that Christ says, sorry, you're not the ones that enter into to, to the kingdom because they did not have love. And without love, they were not keeping the law. 
And without love, also, they showed they did not have faith. And thus, they disqualified themselves from the kingdom. So all comes together. This all comes together. The, the, the gospel, the law, the faith, what all these things mean, it all comes into what we just, con we just discussed. So I hope this is something maybe even you'll go back and listen to again a couple of times, really dig into these verses, go back, read the whole New Testament, then the Old Testament, you're going to see, oh, yeah, this is what the Bible is trying to tell me again and again and again. So, Tina, do you have anything that you would like to add? I hope this made sense. And we covered kind of a lot here in this package. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, that is really a deep topic, you know, talking about love and, you know, what does it really mean to love others? And, you know, and I really like, though, the essence of this question, though, and I can't help but like think about this, um, David, what you asked, why is it so difficult to love another? And I know, Jay, you got into, you know, because we're, you know, we have innate selfish desires and, you know, and like you're saying, you know, Satan does want to manipulate us to cause us to fear, to save ourselves or to have anxiety or have trauma to save ourselves, preserve ourselves, survive. And that's true. But I think too, there's also, um, another aspect to it that I, I just can't help but think about, which is like a sense of judgment. Like if this is fair, like it's not fair. I don't want to love that person. They're hurting me. And I feel like that's something that, I, at least for myself, like I really struggle with. It's something I've been struggling with with a specific person for a long time. And I have to keep bringing it to the Lord and saying, Lord, you know, put love in my heart for this person and put forgiveness in my heart because I know, you know, I'm a sinner too. And I'm sure I've hurt people. And, you know, I, I know I need forgiveness. And so, you know, God help me and heal me in this, in this regard. And, um, I can't help but think about something so powerful that Peter wrote in the book of first Peter. So I just want to share this really quick um, as far as, you know, just when you're dealing with, you know, loving others, especially those who don't love you, who are being cruel to you, you know, like Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mountain, you know, Matthew chapter five, um, verses 11 and 12, talking about, you know, blessed are you when those, when you are reviled and persecuted, you know, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I'm like, that is a high calling, you know, to rejoice and be happy when people are persecuting you unfairly. Um, you know, it's one thing if like, yeah, you hurt them and they're mad at you. Okay. You deserve it. But when you don't deserve it and God is still calling you to love your enemies, that's another story. And, um, like I'm saying in first Peter chapter one, starting in verse 21, I'm just going to read this. he says, you know, for e even here unto you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who did no sin. Jesus had nothing, did nothing wrong. He deserved nothing bad. Neither was there guile found in his mouth. he never said anything. He never did anything wrong. It says in verse 23, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously, um, who in his own self, in his own body, but bore our sins in his own body on the tree, basically on the cross, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Um, and so I can't help, you know, but think about, you know, Jesus, the love that God has for us, the love that Jesus has for us in that he loved us while we were yet sinners. He, And that's really the love of God. 
Um, but it is so hard when we feel like it's not fair. Why should I love somebody who's mean, who's cruel, who's hurting me? They're a bad person. They're evil. And it's only by love that love is awakened. And it's only when we realize, you know, we're just as wicked, we're just as sinful, but the only way that those other people are going to be called out of darkness, out of their wicked ways is through love. And we have to show them love because that's the only way they're going to see God. And so I think that, you know, it is definitely difficult. It's really hard because, you know, to love others, it's not always, you know, it doesn't seem fair. It's like, God, why? I don't understand. Uh, you know, why do I have to love somebody who hurt me? You know, shouldn't it be eye for an eye? They hurt me. I should be able to hurt them back. But God says, no, I tell you, that, you know, that to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And um, the only way that we can do that is with Christ in us, with the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And that's why it's a, you know, the fruit of the spirit, you know, and, you know, uh, the natural development of love working through us is only happens when we allow, you know, we submit to God, we submit to his Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit then um, creates that fruit of love to other people. And it takes time and it takes effort. And so I think a lot of people, you know, it's a nice verse to say, you know, love your enemies. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. But in practical, you know, execution of, of this idea, it really takes a lot of effort. It takes time. It takes prayer where you really have to wrestle with yourself. Like Jacob wrestled with Christ all night, you know, um, saying, you know, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go, Lord, until you give me what I need, you know, which is I need love for these other people. And so it, it like I said, it, it takes time, it takes effort, and it's a continual process. It's not something that just boom, happens overnight. Um, to love somebody is really, it can be really hard. Um, but if we want to, you know, just like Paul says, you know, we're running a race and when you run in a race, you know, just like these athletes, they have to exercise, they have to do this continually. Otherwise they're not going to be able to, to win. Um, they're not going to be able to perform. And same with us. If we're not taking the time every day to surrender our hearts to the Lord and, you know, you know, give God, you know, all the yuckiness inside of us, then we're never going to be able to have that cleaned by, you know, the blood of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit to work in us, to will and to do of God's good pleasure, which is to, again, love our, love others. And, um, you know, just like it's, um, it talks about in Galatians really quick. I know I'm, I'm probably talking more than I need to. Um, but he talks about, you know, for, you know, love is a fulfillment of the law. And so if we want, Jesus tells us, you know, if you love me, keep my commandments, you know, keep my law and the essence of, you know, abiding in God's law and, and obeying his law is to love other people. But again, it takes, it takes an effort for sure on our part, but, you know, we strive forward to the, the prize, which is Jesus Christ, which is our example again. So, um, David, I feel you. <laughs> it is very difficult to love other people a lot of the time, especially when they are not lovable, when they're hurting us, when they're doing things that, you know, make us frustrated and angry or whatever it is. But, um, you know, I just, I encourage you to, you know, continue in prayer and to pray for these people and ask God to fill you with his spirit and his love because you're to love in your own strength isn't really possible. You need God working in you because God is love. So I would just encourage you with that.
So yeah, Jay, uh, anything else? I just saw the notice for our, our, <laughs> our episode. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I think you're on mute, my friend. Oh, good point. Yeah, so Robert has a good follow-up question, and he says, I already know that we can't change ourselves and we shouldn't do it in our own strength. So how do I submit my will to God without doing it in my own strength? So I think that's, this is a big question that a lot of people will grapple their whole lives with. And I think for everybody, there's going to be potentially a different answer. And this is something that you will have to find what works for you. And maybe it's also something like from sin to sin, it's going to be a different approach. Something that might be a chemical addiction now at this point is going to be have to handle differently than something that might be a result of uh, traumas or experiences or way that you were raised. So it requires, um, first, I think, asking what's the root cause of it? Why are you doing this sin? Why do you keep coming back to it? What what got you to that point? And can you d address that root cause? So is, is there an underlying need or desire in you? And then ask, is there a good way to satisfy that desire? Is there a better thing that you can replace it with? So you have this habit. Is there a good habit that you can replace your bad habit with? So anytime you think, oh, I want to do this now, like, nope, let me switch and do this other thing. And over time, doing enough switches, you build a new pathway, a new habit, a new, um, uh, basically you now supplement and replace and overcome that, that thing you had. That works for some people. Uh, I think another one that's helpful is just having motivation. How can you have motivation? One motivation might be visualizing you overcoming. Like, what are you fighting for? Why are you fighting to overcome it? Visualize, visualize yourself free of that sin visualize yourself in the presence of god being pleasing to him and living the all of eternity because you by his help overcame it and then have anticipation for the things that come and then a third thing would be uh, kind of what tina was talking about too about the thinking of the love of god and that is so critical i think too for this whole process because jesus first says if you love me keep my commandments so it makes no point. There's no point, really. Believe me, I, I think there's absolutely no point trying to keep God's commandments if you don't love him. You have to love him. And in fact, the commandments, the essence of them is love. So you got to have that love. How do you get it? Well, we're told we love him because he first loved us. And so now that we know that, we now need to appreciate his love for us. How do we do that? Well, this is where the Bible comes in, right? The whole book is supposed to be his love story his love letter to us telling us showing us how he loves us and so we need to read the bible we need to listen to what it's trying to tell us about how god loves us and the the levels the the measures he's taking to show that love to prove that love to demonstrate that love the promises the stories all these things and then the gospels that what jesus actually says and does take these things these things in think about them fill our brain always be meditating all these on these things and as we're doing this, we're, we're thinking about how God loves us. It should engender now reciprocal love, love that, you know, because he loved us, we're going to love him back. And by that love, by that power of the bond and the power of the relationship, that too will help us overcome. And again, it's not in our strength. It's by, it's by the love we have because he had, he loved us. And 
and with this love also is creating a better environment for the spirit to be with us and dwell in us and and it all plays a role in that too so so again number one think of ways to um think of the root cause what's causing you sin what can you replace is there a supplement uh for that and then loving god dwelling on his love for you and seeing if that helps and again there's i don't think there's any silver bullet it's going to be a combo of everything and for a lot of people it, it, it takes these moments where you just utterly break down you get on your knees you're crying and just asking god painfully to intervene like all of us have to go through those times too yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And that goes like really well with the verse that I actually was just thinking about in um, James chapter four, uh, where it talks about, you know, submitting yourselves to God. Um, in verse seven, it tells us, you know, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then it keeps going in verse eight, it says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And just kind of like you're saying in verse nine, be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. In verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. So really it goes back to, you know, that, you know, the, the contrite heart, that heart that is just saying, you know, God, I don't want to sin anymore. Like really, I'm dead serious. And you're just taking that time to confess and say, Lord, this is really who I am. I'm really struggling with these sins and getting real with God because God is real and he really wants to help you and he really can help you overcome. But I think so often we don't really take the time to get to know God, to draw close to him so that he can change us from the inside. And so we really have to take that time, you know, to say, God, I give myself to you fully, completely. I know I'm a sinner. I have so many sins. These are my specific sins. I'm struggling with each of them. God, I know I've, I've hurt others and I've hurt myself and I don't want to hurt you anymore. And just really, you know, like I'm saying, getting real with God and asking God to, to change you on the inside and don't get up from your knees until you feel you know, that you fully confessed and that you believe by faith that God has forgiven you and that he will, um, you know, like it says in first John one, nine, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness that God will indeed cleanse you and let you uh, help you to live a clean and sober and beautiful life ahead of you. So you have to believe that by faith. And so Again, I, I hope that's just kind of a little bit of a practical um, solution to to this issue because I, I understand that this is a very common um, feeling by a lot of Christians who, you know, they they want to live the right way, but how to do it, it's it's hard. It you know, it's not easy. The road is narrow. There's few that find it, so it does take a lot of effort, but it is worth it in the end for sure. Amen. I think it's time for the next question. Yes, I was going to say that. And thank right. you, Robert, for the question. Yes, thank you. Right, our next question is from our friend Steph. And she says, if it says in Daniel 9, 27, that he will confirm a covenant with many for one week, does that describe the prophetic Ted Nation confederacy? Well, Let's go dive into that really quick, my friend Steph. So let's first go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, just to get some context as to what you're talking about. Um, so this Daniel 9 is a 
almost the second part of a, of a twofold prophecy. Um, it kind of actually really begins in Daniel chapter eight, and then Daniel chapter nine kind of um, gives that prophecy more context and makes it a little bit fuller and um, more under gives you more understanding. And so basically, the prophecy of Daniel chapter nine um, is talking about the um, the seventy weeks prophecy. So four hundred and ninety. Um, uh, days, which is pr be prophetic years, so literal years, prophetic days, which are literal years. And so um, it's talking about, you know, at the 69th, the last week of the 70 week prophecy in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27, it says, and he, which would be Jesus shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause a sacrifice and the oblation to cease. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So what is this talking about? Well, if we understand, first of all, that, you know, in verse 26, it talks about, you know, three square weeks shall Messiah be cut off, not for himself. So it's talking about the Messiah, which would be Jesus. So Jesus is going to confirm the covenant with many for one week. So this last um, seven day period, which is prophetic days, which means literal years. And so you have to understand that um, when it comes to um, prophetic time, it's um, talking about it, uh, days are a symbol for um, prophetic days are symbol for prophetic years in literal time. Um, just like you see this in Ezekiel chapter four, verse four, um, you know, it's a day for a year principle. So it's saying that in um, Jesus will confirm the covenant with many for one week. So Jesus, in the last week of this prophecy, um, would confirm the covenant. So which covenant are they talking about? Um, I would think that the covenant that it would be referring to would be that of the new covenant. So um, like when it's talking about in Hebrews chapter 8, uh, where it's talking about, you know, nor finding fault with them. And so in Hebrews 8, 8, it's talking about the new covenant. It says, behold, the day shall come, saith the Lord. Well, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In verse 9, it says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, said the Lord. Um, and then in verse 10, it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And actually Jeremiah talks about this new covenant, um, in the old Testament, uh, you know, and Jeremiah is all talking about, you know, the destruction of the temple, um, and you know, a lot of those things going on. And so it talks about in Jeremiah chapter 31, in verse um, 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the new covenant. Um, and so uh, basically the new covenant is, you know, not, you know, the covenant that God made with Moses and the people of Israel back when they led them out of Israel, which was, you know, when God led the people out of Israel, the the people said, whatever the Lord says, we will do. And so it was kind of a self-righteousness. They were saying, we're going to obey God's law. But did they ever really obey God's law? No. And we see that they really never 
um, fully repented. And so the the 70 week prophecy of Daniel chapter nine talks about basically putting an end to the nation of Israel being God's people and that, you know, God's people became more than that, that God's people are just those who have God's law written in their heart and they obey their, you know, the voice of the Lord and their conscience, you know, within themselves. And so it's not, you know, God's people is not limited to a nation like the nation of Israel. It's, you know, extended to all people um, based on those who would have God living in their heart. So that would be the covenant that I believe is what um, is re being referred to in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27. So Jesus is confirming this covenant for one week. And it says, and then the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice in the oblation to cease for the overspreading of abominations. He shall make it desolate. So what um, sacrifice and oblation is Jesus causing to cease? This would be the sacrifice and oblation of the, you know, the, the sanctuary services where they were killing, you know, animals are killing, you know, oxen and sheep and turtle doves, you know, to basically make a sacrifice for their sins. But, you know, where can the blood of sheep or any of these things, um, you know, ever, you know, cause anyone to, um, to really be forgiven? No, they're pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whose blood is the only blood that can truly wash us from our sins. And so, um, talking about that, you know, even you look at Hebrews, again, chapter 10, um, Paul writes about this as well. And so in chapter 10, verse uh, verse 1, I'll start there. It says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not that very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there into perfect. So basically all those years where, you know, back in Moses' time when they set up a physical sanctuary and they had all these sacrifices and, you know, oblations and all these ceremonies to, you know, point forward to the Messiah, you know, all those ceremonies and services and the blood of lambs and sheep and oxen or what have you, those could never really um, forgive you of sin, but they pointed forward to Jesus, who is the true Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. And that's why in Hebrews 10, chapter two, it says, for they would then not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscious of sins. But in those sacrifice sacrifices, there is a remembrance again, made of sins every year. So basically those, you know, um, things cease because they didn't, you know, they didn't cause you to make your sins go away. Um, in verse four, it says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Therefore, when he comes to the world, which is Jesus, he says, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. Um, and basically God has no pleasure in, you know, any of these, these offerings. It's just pointing people. It was to teach people pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, and again, talking about that covenant um, in verse nine, going down in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, then lo, uh, then he said, lo, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second, the new covenant. Again, um, and it says, by which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So, you know, what it's talking about in um in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27, in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Basically in that last, um, th um, the middle of the week, the three in basically three and a half years into Jesus's ministry, Jesus was crucified on the cross and he caused 
all the sanctuary services to be done away with. Those are no longer necessary for, you know, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus um, became the sacrifice needed. And then another, after Jesus was, you know, crucified, resurrected, and went to heaven, there's another three and a half years where God was still pleading with the Jewish nation. And it wasn't until um, after three and a half years that the Jewish people fully and completely rejected Christ. They, you know, his disciples went around preaching, hey, you guys, you Jews, you killed the Messiah, but God still wants to forgive you. But yet, and you see this um, in the book of Acts with, you know, the the follower Stephen, who gave this last testimony, they said, you know, basically that Jesus's blood be on us. We don't care. We don't want to accept Jesus. And they stoned Stephen. And that was really the last call that God gave to the Jewish nation to be, to keep, to remain as his people. And so sadly, um, you know, they did stone Stephen, who was the first, one of the first martyrs for Christ. And, um, that's when, you know, that's the end of the week of the 70 week prophecy. So um, as far as, you know, is there, does this Daniel 9, 7 point to the 10 nation confederacy of uh, the prophetic 10 nation confederacy? I'm assuming you're speaking of the prophecy in Daniel chapter two, talking about like the 10 toes or in the, the book of Revelation, talking about, you know, the 10 kings. Um and, you know, that is something that's going to happen at the end of time, but, you know, right before the coming of Christ. However, Daniel chapter 9, 27 is talking about the 70 week prophecy. This is a messianic, uh, messianic prophecy. This is talking about the Messiah and his death in the middle of that last week. And then um, basically the completion of, of the Jewish nation being, you know, God's God's nation basically on earth. It now went to the Gentiles. It went to anybody who would accept Jesus as their Messiah. So um, I would say, <laughs> sorry, that was like a long answer to tell you. Uh, no, it does not. It's not related to um, that prophecy. Um, it's it's a different time frame for sure. Because again, this Daniel nine twenty seven is talking about when Jesus was crucified, um, whereas you know the ten nations. Um, in the book of Revelation, as well as in um, Daniel chapter two, you see, you know, um, an allusion to that with the 10 toes and the statue of Daniel chapter two, um, that's coming right before the coming of Christ. And so that's a, a two different time periods. So I hope that makes sense. And um, if you have any other questions, be sure to go to our website or uh, ask us again. So I don't know, Jay, any other thoughts on that one? Nope. I think you covered it very well. All right, praise God. Awesome. Um, all right. We have just a few minutes. I don't know, Jay, do you want to do the one more or do you want to, do you think we should wrap it up for the night? Yeah. That last question, I, it's one of those where you could give a short answer or if you want to give a lot of good Bible verses, I think it's one that is good to go deeper in. Okay. You see how all the dots connect. So got you. We'll do that all right. next time. I say, I say we have one minute. <laughs> let's, let's give that, that last uh, question more than one minute. Cause I think yes. it deserves more attention. So I, I think it's a good idea. Let's hold that off till next week. So just if you're, again, if you're new, we want to just remind you that we are a weekly show. We meet live weekly at 6 PM Pacific standard time. And so we hope to see you again next week at, on our weekly show. And um, if you've been blessed, if you've enjoyed uh, what you've heard, please be sure to like and share our page. We always appreciate um, you 
doing your part to help us, you know, share the gospel, share the truth, share the love of the Bible with um, those around us in the world. And, you know, we just, again, we want to um, uh, spread the gospel as much as we can to as many people as possible. And before we go, I do see um, uh, Olivia has said hello and God bless. So we just want to acknowledge you, Olivia. Thank you so much for joining us. And we pray God blesses you as well. And so um, before we go, we always want to say a word of prayer. And uh, Jay, do you want to close us out? Sure. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for those who join us live. We thank you for your words of truth that help us understand what's going on, that help us understand the war within our bodies and minds, the, the battle for our souls, and how you try to make it so easy by trying to empower us and help us to just submit to your power to let you work in us to depend on your promises and most of all help us to by faith by your spirit to love others so that we can be bright shining lights in this dark scary sometimes often painful world and we pray a special blessing for each person join us help us all to be your bright lights lord and thank you for helping us to know how the world works and for your prophecy. And this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And actually, if we just say one quick prayer for our brother, Robert, he asked us specifically to pray for him. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, he did. Good point. Let's do a special prayer for that. Go ahead. Uh, Lord, I also want to pray right now a special prayer for Robert. You know the battle within his heart and how he's struggling and he desires to repent and in fact probably is continually repenting and has the spirit of confession within him within him and i pray lord that you will give him victory this day and this hour and that you will um, help him to just by your spirit not have the desires anymore that you will fill him with the desire to do right to do your will and to make it as easy as possible given his long battle and if it's still something that will continue we pray lord that you give him the insights he needs the wisdom the even the self-reflection to figure out what's the core what is going on and to help him make the right decisions going forward and also, I pray that you just pour out your love on him, that he may experience your love and be transformed by your love, that um, by that love, you will inspire his love back to help him also keep your commandments. And we thank you, Lord, for your promises and your desire to restore us and your patience, your grace, your mercy, all these things that we have, all that we could possibly need to get back into harmony with you and a close relationship with you. And we we look forward to your soon return. And this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for that. And um, amen, Olivia. <laughs> thank you for that. And so we just want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. We pray we'll see you again next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Good night, everybody. God bless you. Bye-bye.